Another horrifying mass shooting in Colorado leaves 10 people dead. The Biden administration continues to escalate its rhetoric against China, and protests erupt throughout the United States to protest violence and murder directed against Asian Americans, while the fight for voting rights heats up. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's March 23rd, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent show by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. We can do this with you, but not without you. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Today, we discuss the tense summit in Alaska between top U.S. and Chinese officials, backroom maneuvering to strengthen the two-party duopoly in American politics, and more. Brian, we're back this week, and we have another great week of programming. Tell us about it. Yes, we do. Welcome, Nicole, Esther, Walter, and it will be another week of high-quality programming. We have our show today in the news and tomorrow with Professor Richard Wolff on the big stories of the economy, and on Thursday, the real story. So I hope that our listeners stay with us. Again, we do not accept advertising here on this show. There are no corporate donors. This show is for the people and it depends on the people. We are not only bringing high quality programming, we are doing it with the aim of popularizing socialist ideas and helping to build a new socialist movement right here in the United States. So please do your part and become a supporter by subscribing at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. Esther, we were planning to start today's show on U.S.-China relations, on the mass shootings and violence imposed or inflicted on Asian Americans, the fight back. But then another mass shooting in Colorado. There have been so many in Colorado, but all over the United States. A mass shooting is defined as a shooting of four or more people in a single episode. There is a mass shooting in the United States every day by that definition. As Nicole mentioned, a gunman opened fire in a Colorado supermarket Monday, killing 10 people. One person was taken into custody at the scene in Boulder, Colorado, where the police have now said there is no, quote, ongoing threat to the public. But this epidemic of mass shootings, again, all around the country, and also very in particular in Colorado. I mean, Esther, you know, when you think about how the United States presents itself to the world, and we're going to talk about American diplomacy and the posture adopted by the United States. 
But not only is there such extreme inequality, but this epidemic of mass shootings, you know, I don't know if this happens anywhere else in the world. It's not happening in China. It's not happening in Russia. It's not happening in Europe. I don't think it happens anywhere. This is a particularly American phenomenon. Right. And there were a few important points that people were making last week around the horrible shootings in Atlanta and peace activists like Christine Ahn and Hyan Lee were making the analogies between the tremendous violence that the U.S. has inflicted around the world in places that we've colonized, places that we've attacked and invaded, like North Korea, like Vietnam, in terms of Asian countries, and this particular violence here at home. Last week directed overwhelmingly toward Asian Americans, Asian people in Atlanta, but this is happening all over. And I think that those of us who are looking at this and constantly seeing these horrific acts, we have to make the connection between just the violence of this culture, you know, founded on genocide, founded on slavery, when it wasn't even illegal to kill a human being, to assault or maim or rape a human being because they were enslaved. So the violence of this country is constantly coming home. You know, all the things that we've done abroad is constantly coming home because you can't inoculate the population at home from that type of violence and that type of mindset that you put out in the world. And it's constantly coming home. And I don't want to make it seem like it has to come home because it's been here all the while. I agree with you. And the toxic mix of racism and violence And again, I want to start to turn towards the summit between the United States and China, because again, in the case of the shootings last week in Atlanta, mostly women, Asian women murdered. The killer went there with the intention of killing them, and he did kill them. And then President Biden gets up and issues these platitudes, we all have to unite against hate and so on and so forth. No, President Biden and Anthony Blinken and the other officials in the Biden administration, just like in the Trump administration, they're not standing against hate. They are generating hate. Let's be real about it. They are generating hate towards China. I mean, the American people have this very unfavorable rating now, approval rating or support for China compared to just 10 years ago. I mean, President Obama announced the pivot to Asia in 2011. That was kind of like amorphous. What does he mean, a pivot to Asia? Well, now we know what a pivot to Asia means. It means the United States is deploying 60% of its air assets, Air Force assets, naval assets, into the Pacific. According to all the documents that are coming out even this week, the new Space Force and Space Command are obsessed with fighting a war against China from outer space, from the heavens. And then you have diplomats like Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, going and inviting China to meet in the United States, in Alaska, where the Chinese are invited as guests. And then he completely denounces them as genocidal maniacs. And then let's not be surprised then that parts of public opinion turned decidedly in a hostile way against China. I was on a televised panel discussion last night, 
And one of the questions that was asked is, what's the difference between Trump's policy towards China and Biden's policy towards China? Now, one of the people on the panel was a Trump official, and he was talking about the aggression committed by China and how the Chinese are on the march and the Chinese military is expanding. And he said, it's the most powerful Navy in the world that China has three aircraft carriers. And I was like, the U.S. has way more aircraft carriers. But more importantly, the United States has a thousand military bases or 800 in 150 countries. The United States spends five times as much as China every year on military goods and on warfare. Anyway, to answer the question, what's the difference between Trump's policy towards China and Biden's policy towards China? Well, we had the first diplomatic encounter between the two countries in Alaska, and this gives us a very big clue as to if there is even any difference. And I would say mm, perhaps minor differences, but I wouldn't say that the Biden administration is less aggressive towards China maybe a little bit in rhetoric, but not even there very much. I want to just go over this, and then I want to play some audio clips. The U.S., as I mentioned, hosted the meeting in Alaska. The Chinese were the invited guests. So when the guests arrived at the home of the host, the host immediately, in their first words, attacked them on a whole range of issues, but very importantly, about China's internal domestic affairs. Most notably, the first words out of the mouth of Secretary of State Anthony Blinken were on Xinjiang, the western part of China where the Uyghurs live. Many other people live there too. About Hong Kong, which is part of China, and Taiwan, also part of China. The U.S. diplomats also immediately launched an attack on their guests and accused them of launching cyber war against the United States and other countries. Now, these were their first words. Please come to a meeting in our country. We will host you. You get there. And then they completely denounced the guests. Now, the Chinese lead representative decided that China wasn't going to be spoken to like they were a criminal in the dock. They decided that China wasn't going to be addressed like a colonial subject in the court of the colonizer. And so he made a speech. It was about 16 minutes long. It was measured, but firm. He spoke directly to the host. And immediately the newspapers and corporate-owned media in capitalist America denounced the Chinese for engaging in wolf warrior diplomacy. Yes, unfortunately, wolf warrior diplomacy is now part of the racist discourse and vernacular employed by Western capitalist media against China. China is supposed to be whipped publicly and dressed down and humiliated as a guest and accepted in silence. Otherwise, their diplomats are wolves and they are not really diplomats. They are, in fact, warriors. Again, this is a gross colonial, imperialistic, racist approach towards China. It adds to the growing atmosphere in America that leads to hate crimes, leads to discrimination, leads to fear and animus and hostility towards China and Asian people in the United States, and invariably leads to violence and even mass murder against Asian Americans, as we saw last week in Atlanta. Nicole, 
Just so the audience understands what was actually said by the American side and the Chinese side, I think we have to play some of the audio clips because the American public is being told, these Chinese are aggressive. They are very, very aggressive. Okay, let's start with Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, welcoming his guests at the invitation of the United States to a meeting in the United States. Let's get started with this first audio clip. I've just returned uh, myself from meetings uh, with Secretary of Defense Austin uh, and our counterparts in Japan uh, and the Republic of Korea, two of our nation's closest allies. Um, They were very interested in the discussions that uh, we'll have here today uh, and tomorrow uh, because the issues that uh, we'll raise are relevant not only to China and the United States, but to others across the region and indeed around the world. Um, Our administration uh, is committed to leading with diplomacy to advance the interests of the United States, and to strengthen the rules-based international order. That system is not an abstraction. It helps countries resolve differences peacefully, uh, coordinate multilateral efforts effectively, and participate in global commerce with the assurance that everyone is following the same rules. The alternative to a rules-based order is a world in which might makes right, and winners take all. And that would be a far more violent and unstable world for all of us. Uh, Today, uh, we'll have an opportunity to discuss key priorities, uh, both domestic uh, and global, so that China can better understand our administration's intentions and approach. We'll also discuss our deep concerns with actions by China, including in Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Taiwan, cyber attacks on the United States, economic coercion toward our allies. Each of these actions threaten the rules-based order that maintains global stability. That's why they're not merely internal matters and why we feel an obligation uh, to raise these issues uh, here today. Okay, so what China does inside of China violates and upsets and threatens the international rules-based order, according to Anthony Blinken. Now, Don't mistake the fact that he's speaking softly. He's not screaming like a maniac. But these words are and must be perceived by China and were perceived by China as a direct threat by the United States announcing that at the beginning of their meeting, they're going to talk about how China is governing China. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if the Chinese invited Blinken and the other American officials to Beijing and started the meeting by saying, look, this is what the meeting's going to be about. We're going to talk about the fact that you have 2.3 million people in American prisons. One out of every four prisoners in the world is in a U.S. jail. We're going to talk about the genocide committed by your government against indigenous people. And we're going to talk about the enslavement of African people and the systematic racism towards African-American people in the United States. And we're going to talk about your endless wars of aggression, including wars against us. Welcome to the meeting. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what the response would be? In all likelihood, the U.S. delegates would have gotten up and walked out. The Chinese didn't walk out, but they spoke for 13 more minutes than they were supposed to. And this is what constitutes wolf warrior diplomacy. Let's listen to Politburo member Yang Chi, his comments in response to Blinken's words. Let's listen to this wolf warrior diplomacy and make up your own mind of whether it sounds super provocative and aggressive. 
the Politburo members' words are translated by the Chinese translator at the meeting. We hope that the United States will do better on human rights. China has made steady progress in human rights, and the fact is that there are many problems within the United States regarding human rights, which is admitted by the U.S. itself as well. The United States has also said that countries can't rely on force in today's world to resolve the challenges we face. And it is a failure to use various means to topple the so-called authoritarian states. And the challenges facing the United States in human rights are deep-seated. They did not just emerge over the past four years, such as Black Lives Matter. It did not come up only recently. So we do hope that for our two countries, it's important that we manage our respective affairs well instead of deflecting the blame on somebody else. Esther, that just didn't sound like wolf warrior diplomacy. One, it was true, but it was so measured. Absolutely. And people from around the world, they have eyes to see. They have ears to hear. They can see every day what's in the news about the United States, not only in terms of Black Lives Matter, but the horrific killings in Atlanta, the ongoing dispossession of Native people of their land and, you know, violations of their rights. So... (laughs) It's almost as if this group of diplomats is operating within their own bubble, thinking that everybody else believes the same bullshit that they do. Yeah, and I agree with your terminology there. Let's go on (laughs) to another part of the Politburo member's response. Again, and then, Walter, I want to get your opinion. Again, this is supposedly wolf warrior provocative diplomacy. Let's listen to what he says about the issue of international peace. The wars in this world are launched by some other countries which have resulted in massive casualties. But for China, what we have asked for, for other countries, is to follow a path of peaceful development. And this is the purpose of our foreign policy. We do not believe in invading through the use of force or to topple other regimes through various means or to massacre the people of other countries because all of those would only cause turmoil and instability. Walter, I mean, massacres, we talked about Iraq last week. We talked about what it led to in Iraq. I mean, the Chinese don't even say you are invading other countries. They say other countries. They're speaking truth, but again, measured and accurate. Yeah, this was not like completely over the top, not whatsoever. I mean, it's completely accurate too. And I think that while it may be portrayed in the US media as this great offense, like, oh, China went over their allotted speaking time to criticize the United States, I think in almost every other part of the world, you know, a comment like that goes over pretty well because it's so obviously true. And for so long, the United States government has been like impervious to criticism on the international stage. Nobody dared do it, even in this relatively mild, you know, measured tone that the top Chinese diplomats participating in the Alaska summit took. So, yeah, I mean, I think that it's completely true. It's measured. 
And it's kind of about time that somebody said that. I mean, just thinking back to that Blinken clip that we played, I mean, a rules-based international order. Like you work for an administration led by a guy who not only voted in favor of the invasion of Iraq, but then when it wasn't going so well, proposed splitting the country up into three different countries, partitioning Iraq, right? I mean, is that one of the rules to the international order? You're allowed to invade a country, kill a million people, and then when it gets too complicated, split it up into three different countries? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, Walter. People might not remember that. That was Joe Biden's plan. When the U.S. couldn't defeat the armed resistance and the civil resistance in Iraq after the criminal invasion in March 2003, Biden's formula was to partition Iraq and make it into three countries, a Sunni country, a Shiite country, and a Kurdish country. So it's like, oh, it's perfect for America, like British colonialism too, where they could divide India between a Muslim-majority Pakistan, and a Hindu-majority India, thus dividing the formerly colonized people so that they would be weakened in the face of British you know, continued influence. But can you imagine some countries saying, you know what, why don't we have a, a white America, a Latino America, a black America, et cetera, et cetera. But that was Joe Biden. He was actually seriously proposing that by 2006, that Iraq be partitioned and made into three different countries, and they would all be small and thus more easily subjugated. I want to finish two more clips. Again, the reason I wanted to do these clips is everybody reads the headlines about the so-called wolf warrior diplomacy and don't really get a chance normally to hear the words of the Chinese. So I want to keep playing them. I want to hear, again, this is the Politburo member. He's a Politburo, meaning the Chinese Communist Party's leading committee, Yang Jiechi's comments. He's telling the United States, you're going down the path of major power conflict, also known as the new Cold War. Why don't we rethink that? Because the Chinese don't want this. Let's listen. So what we need to do is to abandon the Cold War mentality and the zero-sum game approach, we must change the way we think and make sure that in this century, the 21st century, countries, big or small, particularly the big countries, should come united together to contribute to the future of humanity and build a community with a shared future for humankind. It's also important for all of us to come together to build a new type of international relations featuring fairness, justice, and mutual respect. And on some regional issues, I think the problem is that the United States has exercised long-arm jurisdiction and suppression and uh, uh, overstretched the national security through the use of force or financial hegemony. And this has created obstacles for normal trade activities. And the United States has also been persuading some countries to launch attacks on China. All right, we're going to end with this part, Nicole. But again, when you listen to that, just if the American people could actually be given the audio so that they could hear it, it sounds completely reasonable. But again, what's being spoon-fed to the American people is that China's on the march and the Chinese are being aggressive. And now they've adopted wolf warrior diplomacy as opposed to being quiet uh, and just allowing the United States to bully them in international affairs. 
I really like his comment in that last clip you played, Brian. He says, I think the problem is that the U.S. has exercised long-arm jurisdiction and suppression. I mean, that's exactly what it is. That's what we've you know, seen for decades since the Chinese Revolution. And, you know, it's what we're seeing right now with the China bashing that's going on, which is, of course, one of the main causes very clearly of a lot of the increase in hate crimes that people all over the country have reported. There have been 3,800 hate crimes against Asian Americans that have been self-reported. And we know that many people don't report those sorts of crimes. And that's only been in the last year, since last March, since the pandemic started. This didn't start with Donald Trump, but he absolutely did not help. And it's clearly continuing with the Biden administration. One of the hallmarks of Chinese diplomacy by the mid-1970s and going forward was the Chinese decided our main priority is economic development to undo poverty, to overcome the legacy of underdevelopment imposed by the imperialist takeover of their country in what the Chinese call the century of humiliation. So, For the last 40 years, the Chinese haven't really, they've kind of been very quiet in terms of their approach. They may not and certainly did not agree with many things that were happening by the United States or what it said. But, you know, this is not wolf warrior diplomacy. I want to go back just, again, for the historical record, let our audience hear how Chairman Mao Zedong talked about imperialism in 19. 58. In other words, let's listen to how it sounded in an earlier period and compare this presentation, the one we just heard, to how the Chinese spoke before they really completely engaged with the West. And then tell me if what you just heard sounded like wolf warrior diplomacy. Here's Chairman Mao Zedong, 1958. Quote, Imperialism will not last long because it always does evil things. It persists in grooming and supporting reactionaries in all countries who are against the people. It has forcibly seized many colonies and semi-colonies and many military bases, and it threatens peace with atomic war. Thus, forced by imperialism to do so, more than 90% of the people of the world are rising up or will rise in a struggle against it. Yet imperialism is still alive, still running amok in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. In the West, imperialism is still oppressing its own people at home. This situation must change. It is the task of the people of the whole world to put an end to the aggression and oppression perpetrated by imperialism and chiefly by U.S. imperialism. By comparison, the words of the current Chinese diplomatic group are not tough words. They're not super aggressive words, but they're words that tell the truth in very measured diplomatic terms. I would say in conclusion that the words spoken by Mao Zedong in 1958, less measured perhaps, but also very, very true. I think if there's any really provocative diplomacy It is the diplomacy, so-called, that is accompanying the reorientation of U.S. foreign and military policy that targets China for major power conflict. Nicole, we saw the impact of this last week in Atlanta with the murders that we've discussed. We also saw that people are fighting back. There were mass rallies all over the country, and even in Atlanta that day, and then mass rallies over the weekend, and the struggle 
against racism directed against Asian American people, that is continuing to grow. Let's talk about what's happening. In dozens of cities, in fact, this coming Saturday, there's a national day of action where, like I said, dozens of cities are going to be standing up and pushing back. This is not the first time that the Asian American communities in the United States have seen this kind of violence and people are ready to fight. They're ready to stand up and push back on what is happening. And as I mentioned in one of the last clips, it's so clear that one of the big causes of the huge increase in anti-Asian violence, anti-Asian hate, anti-Asian racism, you know, is clearly the pivot to Asia and the China bashing that's happening on a national level. When there are so many headlines about, you know, really demonizing China, like this is the quote unquote China virus, or there's no need to repeat all of these here, but there's a lot of this kind of China bashing that's happening. And that affects anybody who's Asian in this country and is clearly connected to what happened last week in Atlanta with so many people, at least six who were Asian women being killed. And I know everyone's heard this at this point, but I just, it's so galling to hear the head of police stand up and say, well, the shooter just had a bad day. Well, that's not acceptable. Like that is very, very clearly not acceptable. And the fact that he stood up there and said that as if it was, is I think a real peek into the way that so many people in this country are thinking about this. And, you know, that's why it's so important that there are so many more people standing up, pushing back and coming out to fight, coming out to talk about what's going on and to rally in the streets this weekend on Saturday. Let's turn to another story. It's not disconnected from the struggle against racism. It's very, very connected. And that is the issue of voting rights. You know, Esther, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was, in addition to the Civil Rights Act, perhaps the most far-reaching legislation in American history because it undid elements of the police state that existed against Black people in Southern states that police state existed against black people in northern states too, but in an even more pronounced formal so-called legal way in the South. But voting rights are back in the news. Let's talk about what's going on. Right. So there's also a very important fight about voting rights happening in D.C. right now. One proposed measure for voting rights, the For the People Act, has already passed the House, and now a Senate version is being debated. But while important provisions in this law will protect voting rights and voting access, some provisions will also make it more difficult for third parties to grow and to compete against these two corporate parties, the Democrats and Republicans. So the poison pill in the bill I'm talking about seems to be specifically taking aim at the Green Party, which uses public funding for their campaigns. The For the People Act is also known as H.R. 1, and it quintuples the amount of money Green Party presidential campaigns, for example, will be required to raise to qualify for federal matching funds from $5,000 in each of 20 states to $25,000 per state. So writing for the online publication Maryland Matters, the former head of the Green Party, Michael Feinstein, said, The real-world effect of eliminating the existing one-to-one threshold would be to eliminate a matching funds threshold that is demonstrably reachable by minor party candidates and replace it with a category reachable likely only by top-tier major party candidates. In talking about this legislation, he calls it a sleight of hand that will lead people to think that Democrats are for increased public funding, but apparently they're only interested in increased public funding for themselves. 
And the existence of this poison pill in the act is largely being ignored in the debate in Congress and in corporate media because there is such a need for voting protections right now, especially in the light of the voter suppression laws being introduced around the country. In the aftermath of Trump losing the presidency, Republicans in 43 states are pushing more than 250 proposed laws that will make it more difficult for people to vote. And because most of these proposed laws target early voting, souls to the polls used by black churches, these laws are obviously targeting the population of Democratic voters, black and brown voters, working class voters, working parents who make use of more flexible hours to vote, and those making use of mail-in voting during the pandemic. So these proposed laws in these different states are considered the most direct attack on voting rights since the Jim Crow era before the passage of the Voting Rights Act. And the pushback to these laws has been called the most important task for these organizers, especially in southern states like Georgia, who see their work in this weighty tradition of John Lewis and civil rights elders, you know, many who are ancestors now who were attacked on Bloody Sunday this month in 1965 in Selma, Alabama, people who gave their lives for the right to vote. But with this poison pill included in the proposed law, I think the heroism of the civil rights movement for democratic rights is being weaponized against expanding democratic voting rights. Last week, John Lewis's pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church, the freshman senator from Georgia, the Reverend Raphael Warnock, made his first speech on the Senate floor. It was a very impassioned speech, and he received a standing ovation afterward You know about the Voting Rights Act and the history of voter suppression, extreme violence committed against Black people, and those advocating on behalf of Black people. Let's hear his, some of his remarks. Humanity's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, but humanity's inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary. John Lewis understood that and was beaten on a bridge defending it. Amelia Boynton, like so many women not mentioned nearly enough, was gassed on that same bridge. A white woman named Viola Luiso was killed. Mega Evers was murdered in his own driveway. Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman, two Jews and an African-American standing up for that sacred idea of democracy also paid the ultimate price. And we in this body would be stopped and stymied by partisan politics, short-term political gain, Senate procedure. I say let's get this done no matter what. I urge my colleagues to pass these two bills, strengthen and lengthen the cords of our democracy, secure our credibility as the premier voice for freedom-loving people and democratic movements all over the world. So that was Senator Warnock of Georgia last week and invoking the names of heroes and martyrs for voting rights and remembering their sacrifice, you know, and I think that's so important. And I think it's horrible that this legacy is being used once again as a cover for something that is anti-democratic. You know, the poison pill in this legislation that I mentioned to really hurt emerging third parties is really against the idea and spirit of expanding voting rights for people. And for me, it's comparable to how Black voters in South Carolina were weaponized against the Bernie Sanders campaign. You know, in addition to changing the way that parties have to raise money, you know, which is very difficult to do on a nationwide basis, you know, this 
provisions in this HR1 would eliminate general election campaign block grants that parties can access by winning at least 5% of the vote in the previous presidential election. And this provision, these block grants were created to give a fair shot to alternative parties that demonstrate significant public support. And one other provision I think is really dangerous and horrible is that it inflates the amount of money that a national party committee can give to candidates from just $5,000 to $100 million. (laughs) And that's an increase of nearly 2 million percent. And that would give these Democratic and Republican party bosses virtually unlimited power to flood elections with big money. So in the case of the Green Party, they have an email campaign at their website that you can sign on to to oppose these parts of the act and request amendments to it. And there are other parties like the Movement for People's Party that have also come out in opposition to these provisions of the legislation. Because when you really think about it, it's just the parties on the left, emerging parties on the left that will be impacted by this type of poison pill, these types of new requirements, because any uh, emerging parties on the right and the far right, they'll use dark money without any hesitation. And they have lots of donors and rich donors that will give to support their campaigns. I'm so glad, Esther, that you raised this because it's really something to hear Warnock talk about. We are the premier you know, face and voice of democracy in the world, and this bill will help do that. When in fact, it's designed by the Democrats to um, even more so weaken independent progressive third parties like the Green Party. There are other parties we've had on our show, Gloria Lariva from the Party for Socialism and Liberation. There are numerous emerging left-wing socialist independent parties, and they have so much trouble getting on the ballot because the Republicans and Democrats have constructed a system that allows for and maintains and sustains uh, a two-party dictatorship. And that's what it really is. Let's not forget that during the Russiagate, the Republicans and Democrats hauled Jill Stein before the Senate Intelligence Committee. They demanded all of the internal correspondence. Can you imagine of the Green Party? So the Democrats and Republicans, and especially the Democrats who were trying to destroy Jill Stein, going after that, Jill Stein uh, cooperated in some level, but didn't give over, refused to give over the internal correspondence of the party or other, their donors list. And they, I think they were asking for anybody who had like a Russian name who ever made a donation to the Green Party. She was called before the Senate Intelligence Committee. And remember in what happened in 2012 when Jill Stein and the Green Party were on the ballot such that 85% of the voters in America could actually vote for them? She was denied entrance to the Hofstra University debate And at the gate, when she insisted on being allowed into the debate, Jill Stein, a presidential candidate, was arrested and she was shackled to a chair for the next eight hours. That's the premier voice and face of democracy. I mean, really, really says so much that the two capitalist parties want to maintain their capitalist political dictatorship over the political process in America. And they're both beholden to the same corporations, the same billionaires, the same military industrial complex. They vie with each other every two or four years to see who's going to get the spoils of government. But the differences between them are really quite marginal. 
Time is going fast. Walter, again, you are the editor at Liberation News. You have a newsletter that comes out with really fascinating and important analysis. It comes out every Monday. Just give us a preview of some of the main stories in the current week's newsletter from Liberation News. And if people want to read the website or subscribe to the newsletter, what do they do? Yeah, well, thanks, Brian. Absolutely. I encourage everybody to go to liberationnews.org. Check it out every day. We're going to be bringing you the most important, pressing, breaking news of the day, analysis of what's going on around the world and inside of this country. And we're going to be highlighting stories from local struggles, local actions, local issues that are blacked out of the corporate media. So that's right. There's a newsletter comes out every Monday. If you want to sign up for it, uh, go to liberationnews.org. At the very top, you'll see sign up for Liberation's newsletter. A couple articles that I wanted to highlight this week. There's one called U.S.-Russia Tensions, What Workers Need to Know. There is a report that was put out by various U.S. spy agencies recently about uh, allegations of election interference in the 2020 presidential contest. These were, of course, evidence-free. All of the supposed evidence is classified. And it's been used as a tool by the Biden administration, an excuse by the Biden administration to essentially create a diplomatic crisis with Russia. And this article talks about why that's important. There's another really interesting article that I highly recommend. Its title is Cuba Launches Phase 3 Test of COVID Vaccine, the first produced in Latin America. You know, it's not all doom and gloom. There's also major strides being made in the world, especially by countries that have pro-socialist or socialist governments. We're always taught that socialism stifles innovation, but here we have Cuba with one of the most advanced pharmaceutical industries in the world that's put to use for the benefit of the people, developing a crucially important coronavirus vaccine that's being used not just in Cuba, where the deaths have been very, very, very low because of competent management by the government, but being used all around the world to save countless lives. So definitely recommend checking that out as well. And here's a local focus story that I think touches on some of the key themes in this country's politics. It's titled, Why Does Jackson, Mississippi Have Unsafe Water? And it talks about the infrastructure crisis in Jackson, a majority black working class city, where critical infrastructure, especially that related to Water and other public utilities have been systematically neglected for years and years and years, decades and decades and decades. And as a consequence, people have to boil their water. And that that was an improvement because prior to that, during that terrible storm that swept the South, people couldn't get water at all. I mean, this is supposed to be the richest country in the world. And yet, perhaps the most elemental thing to human life is being denied to people. So that's liberationnews.org. Sign up for our newsletter. You'll see the button at the top. I encourage everybody to check that out every day. Nicole, one final word. Walter mentioned Mississippi. People in Jackson don't have clean water. I mean, in all of the southern states, the former Confederacy, people are poor. Union rights, well, don't or haven't existed. Extreme racism, police state violence. But there's always also this tradition of struggle this tradition of struggle. And, you know, one of the great points that I think is important to make is that when the left was at its lowest ebb, say in 1954, when the witch hunt had decimated socialist and communist movements, 
the movement of the people revived and it didn't revive in Berkeley or Boston or New York or San Francisco. It revived in Montgomery, Alabama, where life was so hard, the repression was so great, and yet the Montgomery bus boycott initiated by Rosa Parks and Dr. King and other civil rights leaders led it. That became the revival of what became the late 50s and then finally the 60s, the struggle of the people. Let's just discuss in our last minute this amazing struggle of Amazon workers. This is David and Goliath, a predominantly black workforce at Amazon. We have an audio clip. These workers are trying to unionize Amazon. If they succeed, they'll be the first Amazon enterprise in the United States that's unionized. But it's not only a labor struggle, it is a civil rights movement. Anyway, we have an audio clip. Do we have an opportunity to play it? Yes. I'm going to play this clip. It's Daryl Richardson. He's at a recent rally in Bessemer, Alabama, and he's the worker, the Amazon worker who started this historic union drive in Alabama by reaching out to the union there, RWDSU. So here he is speaking at a recent rally. I walk in that facility every day from 7.15 to 5.45. Uh, the employees deserve better, a better pay wage, job security, you know, a better safety environment. It's, it's sad to walk in that, in that facility every day to see employees getting fired, not being six feet apart. Employees get fired for leaving off their they station to go to the bathroom. Employees get fired for walking off their station and going to get water. You know, you work... 10 to 11 hours a day to only two breaks. You know, that ain't right. we, don't, we don't deserve that. We deserve better. We're just not going to quit, so we're going to stay and fight and make it better for our men. I'm 51 years old. I can't be going in and out of jobs. That don't look good either. Yeah. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to stay here and I'm going to fight to the end. We're going to find out what happens with the outcome of the election. Again, we can't overstate how important it is what the workers in Amazon and Bessemer are doing. The vote will come in next week. We'll cover it. This is truly David versus Goliath. As we have said before, what happens in the South will have impact not only on Southern labor, but labor nationwide. And in a bigger picture and in a historical picture, the struggle in the South, if you think back to what happened in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955 with that 13-month-long bus boycott initiated by Rosa Parks and led by Dr. King and others, it set off the civil rights revolution in America. It's what really began the 1960s. The 1960s began in 1955 in Montgomery. And so if the workers were to succeed, if they were to succeed, it will have a ripple effect everywhere. And the ripple effect, actually, Brian, is already starting. A thousand Amazon workers at least have already reached out to the RWDSU union workers in Baltimore, New Orleans, Portland, Denver, Southern California, and other places are already following the lead of what's going on in Bessemer, Alabama. The Teamsters, too, are taking the battle beyond the warehouse and are talking to drivers and construction workers who are helping to build Amazon facilities and drive a lot of these Amazon products around. So it's very clearly really inspiring a lot of workers around the country. Yeah, that's important, Nicole. You know, when people start to fight, it inspires other people to fight. And that's what we need in the United States. You know, there's a reason that inequality has grown. There's a reason poverty has been increasing. There's a reason that one out of every two people in the United States, according to the Poor People's Campaign, lives either in poverty or near poverty. And that's because 
without struggle, the ruling class, the capitalists try to do everything to enhance their profits, increase their profit margin at the expense of the people. We will come back and look at Alabama and the outcome of this struggle, win or lose, next week. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.